this particular story, not only does he give grace uh, to a city called Nineveh, which we'll see in the chapters that are coming, uh, coming up, but he gives grace to every single person throughout the generations. God is a God of incredible grace. And so we're going to see a little bit of that in this series, in this book. Now, before I pray, I just want to say, um, we do have a toddler's room. If you have a little one and you want them to kind of go and be taken care of, just through those doors to the right, uh, there's someone there taking care of your little ones. Uh, and you can also hang out there if you want to, because we're projecting the sermon from, from here to there. Uh, so feel free to, to join over there. Last week, uh, we looked at Jonah chapter 1. And we basically saw uh, that Jonah, a prophet, the servant of God, uh, was being disobedient. God had called him to go preach uh, the good news in a city called Nineveh, and he was like, I'm not doing that. Uh, He turned in the opposite direction and ran to Tarshish. And so God began to recalculate him. He began to say, listen, Jonah, I'm not going to let you go and do your own thing, but because of grace, because I love you, because I'm still involved in your life, I'm going to create some things, some events that are going to cause you to recalculate, to, to turn back to me. We saw that that's, that's what happens. That when you're being recalculated, it's one of two reasons. It's either God is wanting to call you to himself. He wants you to understand who he is. He wants a deeper relationship with you. Or he's calling you to go, to go and share the gospel, to go share the good news with other people so that others might know of the grace that is found in him. We ended it with um, Jonah being thrown out of the ship into the water and then a great fish swallowing him up. That's where we ended the story. And so as we move into Jonah chapter 2, there's three things that I want us to see. Three things that we're going to see from the text. In fact, I ended last week with these three things because we took communion. It's something that I will always do when we take communion together. I'm going to call us to reflect repent, and then rejoice. I'm always going to call us to do that, to reflect, to repent, and to rejoice. And these are the three things that we're going to see in Jonah chapter 2. But before we do that, I'll pray, and then we'll jump into God's word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for uh, your word that is relevant to us today. These are ancient words, but uh, they carry so much power. I ask that you would open up our hearts that we might hear from you that our minds would be open, that they're going to, we're going to hear some difficult things, but I ask that your grace would love us. I pray against any distractions here this morning. I ask that your spirit would lead, that you would use me as a vessel, as an instrument, to communicate your word. Father, we love you. We praise you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to see is is that we're called to reflect. When God recalculates us, we we get to a place where we're forced to reflect. And in order to see that, we actually have to peel back to Jonah chapter 1. And so I'll start us in Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. Hear these words of our father. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. See, sometimes I think we romanticize the stories that we find in the scriptures. And it's not always our fault. I know sometimes we'll get these books and and they'll have these beautiful images, sometimes kind of cartoonish. 
I've seen one of Jonah where it's Jonah and he's in this big fish. It looks like a, a whale and he's got a torch and it's kind of dark. It looks cute. But think about it for a moment. Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights. It was unbelievably uncomfortable. It must have been. It must have been cold and wet. Literally, like, he, he must have put his hands just trying to maybe secure himself and he just kept slipping every time. Unbelievably uncomfortable. Inconvenient. Inconvenient. But that's where God had him. Remember, we said last week, God appointed this great fish. That yes, uh, sometimes when we walk into challenging times, God may have allowed it, and sometimes he directs it. He orchestrates it. And in Jonah, that's what he did. The Lord appointed a great fish. Putting Jonah in this uncomfortable situation. But there was a reason, there was a purpose. It's so that he might reflect. That he might sit there and reflect. Some of you are in an uncomfortable situation. You're probably crying out to God that he would remove it, and he doesn't. It's because he's wanting you to pause for a moment and reflect. We live in a world where things are always moving quickly. Some of you feel like my life is always moving at 200 kilometers an hour. And so even like last week when we do communion together and I say, guys, I want us to pause for a moment. I want us to reflect. I want us to, to gaze our eyes on the Lord. Your mind, you're just going, man, I need to get through this because I need to plan for lunch. Oh, so-and-so is coming over. I need to respond to that email or oh, that WhatsApp that just came when we were singing. Like life is just constantly moving. And so God has to put you in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights so that you might reflect. God wanted Jonah to reflect, to think about his disobedience. He needed time to pause and reflect. See, our culture, our society was so uncomfortable with just even silence for more than five minutes. I don't want to reflect. I don't want to think about my life. Jonah was forced to pause and reflect. Three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish. It must have felt like being in the valley of the shadow of death. Much like David when he writes the Psalms. It must have felt like that, like I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. It's an inconvenient place to be. Brian Loritz says it this way. He says, the, the valley is an inconvenient place to live. As many of you probably feel like you're in that place. It's an inconvenient place to live. But hear this, it's a great place to learn. Ah, it's a great place to learn. Fruits and vegetables, they, they grow, not only grow, but they thrive in the valley. Very rarely do they do well on the mountaintop. It's a great place for us to learn. It forces us to stop and to reflect. And so Jonah had to pause and reflect about his disobedience, about how he was relating to God. 
some of you might have to pause and reflect. But as we do that, it, it takes us to a place where we now can repent. This idea of repentance is to turn from whatever it is that you were believing would give you life and then turning to God. It's a 180 degree turn. Whether it's for the first time in your life or whether you're constantly doing it. That comes from a place of reflecting, of going, hold on, I've, I've committed a great sin, I've, I'm being disobedient, I'm no longer listening to God. Gosh, I need to repent. I need to turn from whatever it is I was thinking could give me life, and I need to turn to Him. And so Jonah does that. He begins to repent. It says here, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, out of my suffering, out of my trouble. At my lowest point, I called out to the Lord. That time of reflection moved him to a time of repentance. He calls out to the Lord. But, but I want us to focus on this word, Lord. It's, if you have your Bible with you, it's probably uh, written in all capitals. It might even be a different font from the rest of the words. See, this, this word, Lord, is one of the many words of God, among the many names of God. See, God has many names. If you look in the Old Testament, he has many names, and each one is incredibly unique. It is incredibly unique. And so when Jonah uses this word, Lord, what he's saying is he's, he's using the name Yahweh. Yahweh. Many of you might be familiar with it. Yahweh. See, this word was unbelievably important to the Hebrews. Unbelievably important. You see, they valued this name. They valued it so much that they would never write it out in its form. They would always abbreviate it. It was just too holy for, for us mere human beings to write it out. So they would abbreviate it. And when they, after writing it out, after abbreviating, abbreviating it, they would burn the pen. That's how holy this name was. And that's the, the very name that Jonah uses when he cries out to the Lord. He called out to Yahweh. But, but this name, this name communicates intimacy. See, the, the other many names of God, they, they also communicate something. Some is his strength, his wisdom. But here, Yahweh communicates his intimacy. His intimacy, that he's close. That's who Jonah was crying out to. He was saying, I, I, I want the Lord who is close. When I'm at my lowest point, that's who I need. I, I want the Lord who is close to me. It's the same name that David uses in Psalm 23 when he talks about being in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, The Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. That intimacy, that closeness, that's what he desires. That's what Jonah desires. And so as he begins to repent, he says, I want the Lord who is close. That's who I'm crying out to. And he answered me. God heard Jonah's cry. But he intentionally left him there. Because part of that repentance, there was still more reflection that Jonah had to go through. So he's like, no, no, I hear you, Jonah. You're not alone. 
But I'm going to intentionally leave you there because there's more reflection that is required. Out of the belly of Sheol, this word Sheol, the, the Hebrew word for grave, he's saying, out of the belly of the grave, Jonah sees himself in a, in a place of death. Out of the belly of Sheol. That's, you, you heard me. I, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. That talks of God's sovereignty. Jonah is now aware that God is in control, that God put him here. Notice he says, For you cast me into the deep, your waves and your billows. See, out of that time of reflection, Jonah's now going, listen, I understand that this is where God wants me to be. This isn't someone else's fault. It's it's not the sailors, even though they're the ones that threw me over. God is in control. You might have lost that job, and and what we want to do is we want to blame people. We're quick to blame others. Sometimes we need to realize that, no, listen, God is sovereign over all of that. Yes, I'm aware that it's, it's the sin of others, but God is sovereign over all of that. He sits on his throne fully in control. He is sovereign over all of that. Jonah's reflection led him to a place where as he is repenting, as he is crying out to the Lord, he sees God for who he is. The one seated on his throne, fully in control. And so he says, it's, you cast me into the deep. It's your waves and your billows. Then I said, verse 4, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again. I will again look upon your holy temple. These are the same words that we find in Psalm 3, verse 1 to 4. The Psalm of David when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. See, I, I love David. I really do. Paul is amazing. I mean, he wrote most of the New, T- New Testament. But, but when I read some of Paul's writings, it feels like Paul is a superhero. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's just like, really? They've just beaten you, Paul. And he's like, but I'm going back to preach the gospel. I don't want to go back. But David I can relate to. Because when you read the Psalms, you'll read one page and he's like, God, I love you. You're so amazing. It's like the whispering voice that we sometimes have. God, you're so amazing. And then you turn the page and he's like, God, where are you? Where are you? See, I can relate to that. I can relate to David when he's going through tough times, when he's going through challenging seasons. And so in Psalm 3, verse 1 to 4, when he writes this psalm, listen to this, his son was trying to kill him. He was on the run because his son was trying to kill him. And so he cries out to the Lord. Listen to what he says. Oh Lord, how many are your foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. 
Jonah uses the same words when he says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look, I shall again look upon your holy temple. He's in a time of distress, in a time of trouble. His disobedience has got him there. And so God is saying, I'm going to put you on timeout. I'm going to put you on timeout so that you might reflect. And that will lead to true, genuine repentance. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and at the roots of the mountains I went down to the land. See, sin, the thing about sin is that it, it always wants to take us down. That's the thing about sin. It always wants to take us down. It wants to knock you out. It wants to leave you for dead. And, and that was the pattern of Jonah's life. From the moment he disobeyed God, from the the moment he decided to choose sin over God, sin wanted to take him out. Sin wanted to put him down. And notice the language. Uh, I'll go back to chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go to Tarshish. Verse 5, when the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. See, sin wants to take us down. That's the pattern of sin. It wants to leave you for dead. It's not something that we play with. See, God hates sin. It offends him. Sin wants to take us down, but notice what God wants to do. I'll keep reading from verse... Well, I'll read from verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, and at the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed Upon me forever, yet you brought me, you brought up my life from the pit. Where sin wants to take you down, God wants to lift you up. Sin's desire is to take you down, to leave you for dead. God wants to lift you up to give you life. And so in Jonah's repentance, he's recognizing that. He's seeing that his disobedience can only lead to death. But he sees God for who he is and he says, no, God wants to give me life. God wants to lift me up out of this situation. Out of this belly of this great fish, God wants to lift me up. I see God for who he is as I see my own sin for what it is. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord my, at a near-death experience. Because that's when we remember the Lord, right? Near-death experience is like, oh, I'm going to cry out to the Lord now. I remembered the Lord. 
But I hate the fact that sometimes God has to take us to that place so that we would remember him. I hate that. I hate, I hate the fact that sometimes we have, to, we have to almost stare death in the face before I go, you know what? There's a better choice. There's a better choice. I wish that wasn't the case. But remember, this is all an act of God's grace. He doesn't do this to punish you. He's doing this so that he can draw you closer to himself. And so sometimes he has to take you to that place. He has to put you in that environment, that situation, so that you can go, you know what? I'm at the lowest point of my life. I am going to cry out to the one who is in control because guess what? I'm not in control. There's nothing that I can do here anymore. I have no more intellect to engage over this situation. I have no more resources to engage over this situation. I need the Lord. My hope for you and I is that it would never get to that point. But even if it does, I want you to know that that's an act of grace on God's part. And that he doesn't leave you for dead. But he'll take you to a point where it's close so that you would remember him. Let's continue to read in verse 7. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, at first glance, that kind of seems like, okay, cool, he's talking about idols, uh, something that, you know, we struggle with. But if you study that verse a little deeper, it's actually quite confusing. Some would say it's out of place. Like, why would Jonah be talking about idols? Remember, uh, Jonah's a prophet. He's a Hebrew prophet. And so idols were a big no-no. That, that's just the one area that he would never go to. It's like that one sin that you would never go to. You know what it is. And so you would never talk about it because it's just like, I, I just, I don't struggle with that. That's just something I don't, I don't do. Our people don't do that. I'm a Hebrew, idols. I would never even think about uh, cutting down a tree and then creating this statue to worship it. I would never do that. So why on earth talk about it? Why on earth talk about it? The, the first thing that I thought, I, I was like, maybe he's referring to the sailors, right? Because they didn't know God. When it was crazy and, and the seas were all over the place, they were crying out to their gods. There were idols that they were worshiping. So maybe he's talking about them. Or maybe he's talking about the Assyrians in the city that God had called them to go preach the good news to. He's thinking, you know what? Those guys worship idols, Right? But, but as I thought about it, I was like, but Jonah, are you still being self-righteous in that? Or are you still being self-righteous? Like, even in your repentance, are you still going, you know what, I'm sorry, God, you know, but I'm not as bad as they are. And as I looked at this repentance, I was like, no, it just doesn't fit the pattern of this repentance. It doesn't make sense. And so I had to go a little bit deeper, and this is where it got uncomfortable for me. Because I believe in that moment, Jonah realized that his sin, his disobedience, was exactly the same as the sailors and the Assyrians. That he was no different. That yes, maybe they had created these, these images to worship. But he's like, God, when I disobeyed you, when I disobeyed you, I had created a, a false god 
that my understanding of who you are was not real, was counterfeit. That I am no different from them. Are we not the same? Yes, we'll go, you know what, I'm not as bad as, as those people because this is what they do. Look at, look at their idolatry. Look at how they worship success and, uh, and, and education and sex. I'm not like them. But yet you're not loving. You're filled with bitterness. And, and then you communicate to others about God through that lens. And so that's why people look and go, you know what, then I don't want to worship your God. If that's what loving is, and you say your God is loving, and, and you're far from it, I, I don't want to be a Christian. Have you ever thought, maybe, maybe we are communicating to others a counterfeit God? A God that maybe we have created, because it makes us feel comfortable. In the same way it felt Jonah comfortable. Like, comfortable because he was self-righteous. He believed we're God's people. We are God's people. We have it all together. But in his repentance, he realizes, you know what? I'm just as bad. Yeah, I may not have the statues. But I'm just as bad. I'm not loving. I'm not gracious. And in our circles, and when I say our circles, I'm, I'm talking about what, what we call reformed Christians. I hate that. I hate it when people come and ask me, are you reformed? Is your church reformed? I always respond by saying, well, what does that mean? Do we believe in the Bible? Yes, then yes. Because we create these, these circles and we go, you know, what? we're better than them. We're better than those people. We're better than those people. And what we do is we, we create this God that is nowhere close to the God that we find in the Scriptures. He sits on his throne and I'm sure he looks at us and he says, that is not who I am. You've created this idol and that's not me. Yes, I'm truthful, but I'm gracious. I'm compassionate, I'm loving. And as you reflect me here, you've got to reflect the real deal Otherwise, you're selling people a counterfeit God. Jonah realized this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. When you receive a counterfeit God, you're not getting the real hope and joy and love that is found in God. You are missing out completely. And we can run the danger of being those people who are selling a counterfeit God. Jonah's time of reflection took him to a place of genuine, authentic repentance. But that repentance took him to a place of rejoicing. Now before we talk about rejoicing, I want to I want to take a step back and say a few things about repentance. Three things that I, I believe are, are unbelievably important to experience when we repent. When we turn from whatever it is that we think will give us life and we turn to God. Three things that I, I believe must be evident 
in our repentance. The first one is that we must revile our sin. Everything this morning starting with R. I feel, I feel very Baptist. So my Baptist roots coming out. When we repent, we must revile our sin. Revile. We must, we must hate our sin. We must condemn our sin. And not just the consequences of our sin. See, many of us will focus on the consequences of our sin. It's, man, I hate it because I got caught. I got caught watching pornography. Oh, man, this is really, really bad. I hate the fact that I, I, maybe there's divorce that's happening in my life because I got caught cheating on my spouse. I hate it. I hate it now. Before, it was okay. When I was repenting, it was like, oh, I'm sorry. But I didn't revile my sin. I didn't hate my sin the way God hates sin. And so when we repent, we've, we, we've got to come to that place where you go, you know what, I hate this, I hate this, because it hurts the very heart of God. It doesn't mean that he loves me less when I sin. See, one day when I'm going to be able to engage with my daughter, I'm going to ask her this question, and I'm going to do it regularly. I'm going to say to her, Amara, does Papa love you more when you're good or when you're bad? See, for, for most of us, we would think it's, it's when I'm good. You love me more when I'm good. It's like, no, I love you the same. I love you the same. I just don't want you to do the bad things because there's more joy for you in the good. But I love you the same. And so I want her to, to one that maybe when she wants to, to take the biscuits from the cupboard when she shouldn't. To go, you know what, this, this is wrong. Papa hates it when I do this. And so therefore I should hate it. Do we revile our sin? Or do we treat sin as a friend? Letting sin come in through the back door every now and then. The second thing that I believe must be evident when we repent is we must resolve to never do it again. We must resolve to never do it again. We, we, there must be some kind of desire to go, you know what, I never want to do this again. I hate the fact that I, had, I disobeyed God. I never want to do this again. Will we do it again? Hey, this is a safe place. I'll be the first one to say it. Most probably. Most probably. There are tons of things in my life where I go, you know what? Man, I, gosh, I never want to do this again. And then the very next week, the very next week I find myself in the same place, same situation. But yet, when we repent, we should resolve to never do it again. And we should cry out to God that he would give us all the power that we need to never do it again, because he can. He can. The third thing is that there must be a, a rhythm of regularly returning. There should be a rhythm of regularly Returning. Now what I mean by this, because some might go, well, hold on, I thought once I repented and believed, it's a done deal, I'm in. That's true. That's what we call salvation. Once you're saved, you're saved. The scriptures say once you're in God's hand, no one, no one can remove you from it. But what I'm talking about here is, is what the scriptures call sanctification. That yes, you're saved, but God is continually working in and through you. Yes, your positional standing is one of perfection because of what Jesus has done. 
but you still live in a broken and fallen world. And so therefore, I need to regularly return to him. I need to create this rhythm, this pattern in my life. Martin Luther, the German reformer, says that uh, all of the Christian life is one of repentance and faith. It's like a relationship. The relationship that I have with my wife, that we, we, we had a massive fight in our first year of marriage. I'm thinking now going, I didn't ask her if I could share this story. So would you, would you pause for a moment? Is this a safe? In our first year of marriage, we, we had a, a really, really bad fight. It was horrible. Uh, I'm sure I was wrong. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was. Um, where basically we, 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 we lived in the same home but didn't speak to each other for four, four days. The mere, hey, what do you need? Should I make breakfast? Okay. Good night. Horrible. And by God's grace, we got to a point where, where I asked for forgiveness and, and there was love and it just made, it made sense. It was great. Have I had to ask for forgiveness from my wife since then? You better believe it. It's the same with God. It doesn't mean that my wife loves me any less. It doesn't mean that the the vows that we made to one another when we stood there on that amazing day mean anything less? No, but it's because we live in a broken world and so we create this rhythm of regularly returning to one another. It's the same with God. Regularly returning to Him. We must revile our sin. We must resolve to never do it again. And we must create a a rhythm of regularly returning to Him. That's why we do communion regularly. Because we need to be reminded. We're forgetful people and we need to be reminded to return to Him. Jonah reflects. That reflection takes him to a, a time of repentance. And as he repents, it leads to rejoicing. Verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. What I have vowed I will pay. What can we give to God? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So what does this mean? What I have vowed I will pay. What Jonah is saying is I have nothing to give but my life. I have nothing to give but my life. I can't give intellect. I don't have enough money. No amount of good that I can do. I'm giving you my life. I'm turning to you. All of me is now all of you. I am not the master of my own destiny. I am not the captain of my ship. And so upon realizing that, he says these words, salvation belongs to the Lord. How different from when we first met Jonah, where he believed that salvation belonged to him because he was like, you know what, I'm not going there. They don't deserve you, God. They don't deserve the good news. They don't deserve to be saved. Therefore, believing that salvation belonged to him. Now he's like, you know what, I have nothing to give. I am no different from those people. I too am in desperate need of you because salvation belongs to you. It belongs to the Lord. 
that moves them into a time of rejoicing because imagine the weight coming off your shoulders. I often feel the, the pressure when I'm, when I'm hanging out with my friends, those who don't know the Lord, and I'm like, man, I, maybe I should say this, maybe I should say it this way. If I engineer it this way, the environment, the context, there's so much weight, and I'm like, hold on. I, I can't save you. Some of y'all need to hear that now. Some of you are in a relationship and you look to the, your partner or, or, or spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend and you're going, you know what? They're my savior. I relate to them like they're my savior. The weight that you're putting on them because they can never save you. They will never die for you on the cross. They can never absorb the wrath of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so there should be a moment of going, you know what? Man, I I just want to rejoice because I don't have to work for my salvation. No amount of good. This pressure of always being happy and smiling. How are you? Great. Man, I've got to put on this front. I've got to put on this face. I'm coming up here to preach. And so they need to see me as the guy who's got a perfect life and a perfect wife and a perfect kid, perfect work. I don't have that. I don't. I fight with my wife. Sometimes I'm, I look to my daughter and I'm like, this is incredibly difficult. This parenting thing is incredibly difficult and expensive. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. It's very, very expensive. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so I want to look to Him. I want to look to Him for all that I need. That He gives me the very breath that I have. It belongs to Him. The freedom that that brings. The joy that that brings. Jonah's time of reflection and repentance took him to a place where he could just rejoice and say, you know what, God, you're in control. Salvation belongs to you. I want to put my life in your hands. But notice this. He's rejoicing, but where is he? He's still in the belly of the fish. Some of us, we go, you know what? I'll rejoice, God. After you get me out of the situation, then I'll rejoice. God may not do that. I know many, many, many people, and some of them close to me, who still have cancer. I'm not saying that God can't do a miraculous work. He can and we cry out to him. I cry for favor. I say, Lord, would you, would you heal? Would you bring your healing? But then to have that person touch you and go, you know what? Even if he doesn't, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Because my life is in his hands. My life is in his hands. I'm going to rejoice. Hey, man, I haven't had a job in six months. But I'm going to rejoice. Because God is in control. Because whatever he does is for my good. It'll always be better than my own plans. I hope that we would be that mature in our relationship with God. That it's not about our external environment, but it's about what's happening internally. That we would rejoice. Verse 10, and I'll close this 
on this. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. I love that. I love that. What it's saying is that God continues to work even when we're in our challenging times. Even when it feels like nothing is happening. Where, where did the fish get Jonah? In the middle of the sea. Where does it vomit him out? On dry land. Some of you might feel like, you know what, God isn't present. No, he's still working behind the scenes. His grace is still working. It still progresses us. I might feel like, God, I, I, like nothing's happening. No, God is working. His hand is still moving. His grace still progresses. I'm going to jump to chapter 3 real quick. Real, real, real quick. Almost like a, a preview for what is coming next week. Jonah chapter 3, and I'll read the first two verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God is a God of second chances. God is a God of second chances. And so no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, I want you to know that God is a God of second chances. That's what grace means. No, but you have no idea what I've done. I don't. But I know that God is a God of second chances. He still wants to work in you. He still wants to work through you. His grace has not left you. He wants you to see him for who he is, loving and compassionate, merciful. So I'll close with this question. What is our response in light of this? What, what are we to do when, when we feel like God is recalculating us? What is our response to that? When we're in a, in a really difficult situation, what is our response? When, when we've disobeyed God, we've reflected. We're wanting to repent. How do we do this? I believe Jonah answers this. We're to set our eyes and hearts to the heavens. We're to cry out to God and it will reach his holy temple, just like it did with Jonah. Just like it did with Jonah. Jonah chapter 2 verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. We're to fix our eyes and our hearts to heaven. To cry out to him. And our prayers will reach his holy temple. Jonah chapter 2 verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What is this holy temple that, God, that Jonah speaks of? That the scriptures again and again speak of. What is this holy temple that we're to cry out to? King Solomon was given the task of building the great temple. And uh, in this temple, there was a room that they called the Holies of Holies. It was a sacred place. The Holies of Holies. And, and, and only the priests could go in there. Once a year, he would go in there, and, and in this room, in this holies of holies, there was what they called the mercy seat. And that's where the priest would, would make a sacrifice. He would sprinkle the blood of the lamb 
for his forgiveness and for the, give, for the forgiveness of the people around him. Once a year, that's what he would do. And so we cry out to the holy temple that our prayers would reach the holies of holies and that we would receive this forgiveness that was sprinkled, the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Read with me Hebrews chapter 9. I'll read from verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus, the final priest, the greatest priest, was to go into this holy of holies. But, but he, wouldn't, he wouldn't sacrifice an animal. He would be the sacrifice, securing for us eternal redemption. See, once a year, once a year in the Old Testament, they would have to go in. But because of Jesus, once it's done, it's done. It's an eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, a heifer is a, a cow that has not had a cough yet, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through, eternal, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more? How much more? What is our response? We cry out to Jesus. One sacrifice for all. Through his sacrifice, we get eternal redemption. That we are saved, that we are brought into this relationship with the Father. This is something that Jonah longed for. This is something that you and I have. That is our response. And so as we reflect, it takes us to a place of repentance. And as we repent, we rejoice because Jesus was the sacrifice. He died on our behalf so that we might have a relationship with the Father, that we might experience true joy. Life everlasting. That's our response. Let's pray. And so, Father, I, I come to you now pleading, pleading that you would meet us where we are. You know what's going on in the individual lives of everyone in this room. You know what keeps us up at night. Some of us may be running. We're not, we don't want to go to Nineveh. We, we want to make our own plans. We believe that we're still the masters of our own life. Father, would you meet us where we are? Would you, would you recalculate us by your grace? But maybe some of us are sitting in the belly of the fish. In an uncomfortable, inconvenient place. We don't want to be here. It's the valley. 
But I hope that we would not forget that it's in the valley where we grow the most. It's in that valley where we repent, we truly repent because we recognize you for who you are. A God of truth, but a God of grace. That nothing that we do or that's been done to us can separate us from your love. I believe that's a word for someone here this morning. I believe that they would hear it, that they would turn to you, and that through that repentance, that it would take us to a place of rejoicing. That our lives are yours, that that, that no amount of work, no amount of work can gain us access into the kingdom. It's only the work that's been done by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus, you are the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. And in you we find perfect love. In Jesus' beautiful, beautiful name. Amen.